Well, as some of you know, this was an auction platform, one of the many, it seems, that was purchased in one of the last two auctions. And I want to say that of all of them, this was perhaps the hardest to write. So thanks a lot, ladies. <laughs> with a group of women who came up with this topic. I'll see you after. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. I think I always care how I am perceived when I speak, and there's something about putting my words on paper and then saying them aloud to all of you, and in a way that's recorded on our website for all posterity. And I want those words to be right, I want them to be true, and I want them to be caring. And for some reason, the words I shared today at this platform, as I looked at the topic of the military in the context of King, it felt especially important that those words be right. Confusion and controversy in my mind around the military has been part of my history from an early age. I was in middle school during the first Gulf War, and I remember so clearly the yellow ribbons that my friends wore pinned to their sweaters or tied in their hair. And I remember especially a conversation that I had with one of my friends, Margaret, who, like me and someone unlike some of our other classmates, came from a very progressive, anti-war, peacenicky kind of family. Or so I thought, until one day she appeared at school with a yellow ribbon on her lapel. Margaret, I said, shocked. We don't support the war. But the yellow ribbon is for the troops, Amanda, she said. We support the troops. But we want the troops to come home. We don't want them to be in the war. But that's why I'm wearing the yellow ribbon. I was confused. I still am. America has a confusing and consuming relationship with our military. Almost 40% of our national budget goes to defense, if you include all defense-related spending. And that represents more than 40% of defense spending worldwide, a huge portion. We romanticize, I think, military service in this country in everything from country music songs, which if you know me a little bit, you know I listen to, to wearing camouflage, and in one of the Stranger Twists, miniature pink camouflage for like three-month-old girls that support the Army. At the same time, those in military service feel, I think, often ignored or disrespected, even reviled, as the participants in a war that the country, by and large, may not support. We honor our veterans in the political arena, barely able to have a political event these days that does not include a few veterans for a photo op. And at the same time, we fail our veterans. No one can erase from their minds the heartbreaking images of Walter Reed's failure a few years ago, crumbling before our eyes, or the recent stories of tragically unmarked or wrongly marked graves in Arlington. Some of this, I think, is attributable to the culture wars in America, whatever you like to call them, the red and blue divide, the progressive and conservative, the tea party and the coffee party, however you name the different ways we interact with our sociocultural and political landscape in this country. But what about the conflicting views that we ourselves hold? 
So I mentioned that my family of origin is pretty peacenicky. My grandmother was a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and actually wouldn't let my mother participate in those school exercises where you had to hide under your desk in the event of a nuclear attack. Now, I don't know that that made my mother any less safe than the people who did practice hiding under their desks. But for my grandmother, it was vitally important that my mother not participate in an exercise that she found to be part of war. More importantly for my own self-understanding, my father was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War, on ethical, not religious grounds, a distinction that we'll talk about a little bit later in the platform. Growing up, I often heard about the story of his journey, about his surety that he could not fight, and his expectation that he would go to jail. In fact, that expectation is why my parents got married when they did. Instead, he was granted conscientious objector status in 1969 or 70, at which point it was pretty unusual, and performed alternative service to the country as a medical researcher for two years. So that is the PC part, the part that made little Amanda in middle school say, well, don't wear that yellow ribbon. We don't support the war. We don't support any war. But my story is not only my father's story. My grandfather, the one married to the member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, served in World War II and was proud to have done so. My husband's family, which is now, of course, also my family, has a number of people who have served and who continue to serve in the military with pride and distinction. In preparing this platform, I consulted with a colleague who is a military chaplain and a Unitarian Universalist minister, and with a good friend who is now a minister, but who is retired from the Navy, for which she did almost exclusively recruitment for submarine work, which she loved and which was clearly a wonderful career choice for her. And I have worked for, as have I imagine some of you, and then celebrated the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, a somewhat odd kind of justice work, perhaps, for someone who doesn't like the military. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that I tear up every single time I see the videos of service men and women able for the first time to acknowledge their partners. The photo op, did you see this, of the Navy's first kiss, the kiss the, awarded to the service person who got off the boat first, which went recently to a lesbian couple. It had me practically cheering at the computer screen, so happy for this couple, both of whom served and sacrificed for their country and who surely deserved to be able to love freely. And I have officiated interments at Arlington Cemetery for veterans of World War II where I was moved by the gravity and the ceremony accorded to those lost. So somehow I have this deep need to reconcile my care for these people, people that I love and respect, who I consider to be ethical and dedicated, and who serve their country with pride, with the concerns that I hold around the military. I want to share a passage from an essay that's been helpful to me in that struggle, written by David Piles, a Unitarian Universalist minister who serves as a chaplain in the U.S. Army Reserves and who was, before entering the ministry, active duty military. He wrote this essay in response to the many questions he got about his chosen path, about how a Unitarian Universalist, a religious liberal, could possibly be a military chaplain. The whole essay is well thought out but I'd like to read you a section from the end as he sums up his choice 
and speaks directly to the challenge of working in a deeply flawed institution. These are his words. In my case, I have cho and I should say they were written before the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. In my case, I have chosen to work from within the military to see that one day we no longer need Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender persons are able to serve openly in the military if they choose. I have chosen to work from within for women to be equally treated within the military. I have chosen to work from within to see that we incorporate real ethical training for soldiers at early stages in their military career so they not only understand that instances like Abu Ghraib cannot happen again, but they also understand why. I have chosen to work from within with officers and non-commissioned officers to deepen their understanding of the need for humanitarian concerns in any military strategy. I have chosen to work from within to see that the religious freedoms of my soldiers are not only respected but celebrated. I have chosen to work from within in order to begin soldiers on the road of coming to terms with the ramification of the experience of war and of their own actions within war. I need my fellow liberals, he goes on, to be that dispassionate voice from without, to, with reason and good conscience, continue to point out to the military and to the government the concerns about the military. I need my fellow liberals to elect politicians who will say the same thing to the military through legislation. I need you all to do this, to grant me and the other military Unitarian Universalists and other liberals the ability to do the necessary work from within." End quote. For me, that sense of both dedication and struggle helps with my own journey, with my own struggle as I reconcile the people that I care about who serve an institution I find flawed. But it's the very end of that passage that calls to me most concretely. How do I do what Reverend Piles asks me to do? To be that voice from without. How do I interact with current conflicts? I want to start by saying that this is such a broad question. America's military is engaged in so many actions around the world. Wartime, peacekeeping, infrastructure building. Some of those actions I think are good and some I think are not. And many I know nothing about. Mostly, frankly, I don't have to think much about war. Here in cushy America, our experience of the conflicts we engage in is remarkably sanitized. You have to seek out these days disturbing images because they certainly don't come to the nightly news. I am rarely reminded of the death toll in American lives and almost never of that in Iraqi and Afghani lives. My most poignant reminder that we are indeed engaged in a war that kills and destroys life comes when I walk around downtown Silver Spring and see young men, hair cut short, often with their wives, rolling along in wheelchairs with both legs cut off at the knee. Because of the particular kind of fighting seen in these wars and because of advances in medical care, more and more soldiers are coming home with injuries they would never have survived in earlier wars. For me, at least, that is a moment of realization and awareness about what my country is engaged in that I can otherwise ignore. For me, this idea of being able to close my eyes to what our military is engaged in brings up one of the questions that this 
auctioneering crew of women asked me to consider. A question about having an all-volunteer army and having a draft. Now, in one sense, I think that question is currently moot. The idea of the draft coming back seems politically almost impossible these days. But I do think that it raises important questions about who is involved with the military in America and who doesn't have to be. As you may know, America moved to an all-volunteer military in 1973, following many years of the draft and significant conscription during World Wars I and II, and most notably, I think, in America's story about ourselves in the Vietnam War. Men are still required to register with the Selective Service at age 18 in case the draft is ever resumed. Historically, draft resistance has been almost as important a part of our country's story as the draft itself. In that arena, the Washington Ethical Society can be, and I think is, proud of work that we have already done, proud of the leaders on whose shoulders we stand. In 1970, Ed Erickson, at the time the leader of the Washington Ethical Society and the president of the American Ethical Union, our national denominational body, and an early activist against the Vietnam War, testified before Congress, before a subcommittee of Congress, in support of the idea that individuals could be conscientious objectors without belief in a supreme being. In part because of his work and in concert with a Supreme Court decision which supported the idea of a humanist approach to religion for conscientious objectorship, conscientious objector status was extended for the first time in American history to those who, like my own father, objected to war on ethical grounds rather than only religious ones. It expanded, in other words, those who could be considered conscientious objectors from having to be part of the peace churches, like the Amish and the Mennonites and Church of the Brethren, to anyone who could indicate a long-standing position against military service. I know from my own family's story how important this was to hundreds of men who knew they could not fight, knew it deeply and strongly, but knew it not through their convictions about God, but through their convictions about themselves and the humanity that they shared. Even so, though, conscientious objector status and service is not seen in the same light as military service, I think. I found a quote which just blew me away from John F. Kennedy in a private letter written. He wrote, war will exist until the distant day when the conscientious objector enjoys the same reputation and prestige as the warrior does today. There is, however, that idea, I think, that Kennedy is speaking to of conscientious objector status and other kinds of military resistance as actually a means to end war. That's the argument of Amy Allison and David Solnit, authors of Army of None, who feel that we can most effectively end wars by working against military recruitment. And here they're speaking in present day, so looking at an all-volunteer army. That might include policing recruiters and giving students information about opting out of the recruitment database, work which the New York Civil Liberties Union has taken on. And it might include offering alter alternate support and opportunities to those who see the military as the best way out or up. It certainly would include supporting conscientious objector status. But the question that I have been struggling with, the question I think posed to me by the folks who, who bought this auction platform, is whether the 
resisting the draft, leaving the country, conscientious objector status, even being supported in alternatives to service, if that's really a goal. I think there's an instant progressive response. Of course, of course it is. Of course there are people who cannot serve and there must always be options. And in some ways, of course we don't want a draft anymore. Of course we support the idea of an all-volunteer army. But ethically, I think that an all-volunteer army creates a two-level system, a division in America, those who are involved in the military and those who are not. It's added to by the fact that the military already draws in its recruitment frequently from specific parts of the population. According to the authors of Army of None, military recruiters are notorious for targeting low-income areas, making unreasonable or sometimes false promises to potential recruits, and engaging in what might be called predatory practices. I should say, obviously, this, does not, this is not true for every military recruiter, but looking broadly, this is what the authors have found. Indeed, in 2009, the National Priorities Project, whose mission is bringing the federal budget home, noted that for the previous five years, Army recruits were disproportionately from lower-income neighborhoods, and fewer than half the recruits were considered what the Army terms high quality, which means that they both have a high school diploma or higher, and that they scored in the top half of an Armed Forces qualifying exam. That exam is actually uh, given to people across America, not just just to military recruits so that the scores are normed or standardized so that they have some comparison when looking at that top half. And that's how they reach the high quality marker. This division in America between those who are involved in the military and those who are not, it leads to folks like me being able to live in what I might call a kind of willful ignorance. And that's the real evil that I want to call out today. That division and ignorance impedes my ability to truly understand and support my family and friends who do have military lives. It also impedes my ability to call out the military when its actions are wrong. I may want to pretend that the military just isn't on my list of priorities, but when it is on my nation's list of priorities, then it must be on mine. We're considering this topic during the service when we traditionally honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. In the popular American imagination, King was about civil rights, about the march on Selma, the bus boycott, about equality for African Americans, desegregation, and nonviolence. And those things are true. But civil rights was by no means the only thing King spoke about. Indeed, he was also an anti-war activist, specifically working against the Vietnam War. That part of his life, though, is rarely touted in history books and not taught to our children. On April 4, 1967, exactly one year before he was assassinated, King gave a speech at Riverside Church in New York City called A Time to Break Silence. In it, he spoke out sharply against President Johnson's policies in Vietnam. David Bromwich, a Yale professor and contributor to the Huffington Post, writes, A time to break silence marked a crossroads in the life of Martin Luther King. President Johnson never forgave him for breaking ranks. Pro-war liberal Democrats afterward often dissociated themselves from his actions. And a large part of the civil rights movement deplored his stance as a violation of an unspoken contract. 
He goes on, Bromwich goes on, even some advisors close to King, as Taylor Branch recounts in At Canaan's Edge, believed that the speech was impolitic, too advanced, not so balanced as it should have been. While the political counselor of President Johnson, John Roach, wrote a confidential memorandum saying that King had thrown in his lot with the commies. As for the press, the New York Times judged that King's protest against the war was wasteful and self-defeating and likely to be disastrous for both causes. The Washington Post went further. It predicted that many who had once listened to King with respect would never again accord him the same confidence, and it concluded he has diminished his usefulness to his cause, his country, and his people. King's speech from that day, like almost everything he wrote, is eloquent and moving. In it, he argues for an end to the Vietnam War with five very specific policy demands, and also for an end to all war, an end to violence as a means for resolu resolution. King's words, which began and will close our platform service today, call us to our highest moral selves and call the country to account for the violence we perpetuate in the name of peace. From that speech, now, it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over. These words call us to open our eyes, to break down the divisions in our society. And that is always, I think, what King calls us to do. In all of his work for civil rights and for economic justice and for peace, King called on us to open our eyes to see clearly what was before us. He questioned our complacency and he asked us to be better versions of ourselves, seeing the truth to his charge that injustice anywhere was a threat to justice everywhere. I go back to that pa passage from Reverend Piles that I shared earlier. I appreciated, as I said, his explanation of how he sees his role within the military as both an agitator and a comforter. But it's his call for our role, for my role outside the military, that I find most compelling and most convicting. Those of us with the luxury of not thinking about the military are not thinking about our country's biggest presence in the world, not thinking about an industry that consumes billions of American dollars and both takes and shapes millions of American lives. The draft may have been a terrible thing, but one effect was that fewer people could not think about the wars that we are engaged in. And so our military involvement was a greater player in the American imagination. Now America seems to me to be divided into those of us who are actively involved in the military, those of us whose lives are lived to the rhythm of our wars, enlistees, officers, defense contractors, their families, and in some cases, whole towns. And those of us who can, in a kind of twisted ignorance is bliss, close our eyes to the whole mess. If there is one thing King stood for, it was that none of us can close our eyes to the humanity around us. In America, that humanity includes those who serve, those who protest, those who fight. As we grapple with a post-draft military, 
a military where we can ostensibly choose our involvement. We can never forget that there is an involvement in the military that every American maintains, simply by our citizenship in this country. We cannot afford to let the division continue, cannot afford to simply honor those who serve on Memorial Day, protest the war once a year, and forget about what the military means on the days in between. Every war is our war. Every peacekeeping mission is our peacekeeping mission. Every war protester is us, and every soldier is us. May we remember.